This is Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. While the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not called to come the righteous, but the sinners. You may be seated. Thank you, Keziah. Morning, everybody. Okay, this is admittedly such a vain way to start our sermon today, but right at the beginning of COVID, when we were doing the virtual in front of a camera, I set down my glasses somewhere, and I never saw them again after that. Completely lost them. And so for almost three years now, I've been bumbling around half blind, not even sure who I'm always talking to. So today's significant because I got glasses yesterday. So I feel like we have to acknowledge the, you know, if I just wear them, you see it, you'll be aware those come from. So this is it. This is the, uh, these, are the these are the new glasses. So thanks. Yeah, you don't, you don't have to pretend. Well, I actually feel confident in these because I, I have no sense of style, as you can tell. Um, uh, um, so I took all the possible frames and brought them to Bible study with me. So speaking of vanity, that's how we started one of the Bible studies a couple weeks ago. I said, which ones? And this was the overwhelming favorite. So I don't really care if you like them or not because the Bible study people... <laughs> really did like them, and I trust them. There's some very stylish people that were at Bible study that week. So I can see you again. I celebrate that. I'm thankful for that. One other thing, if I may embarrass her a little bit, one of our dear members who we always hear from online, but because of health reasons and COVID, hasn't been able to be here. But Joy is here for the first time in, like, years. Or like, Joy, have you been here since COVID, Joy? I don't think you have, right, in person? You have been here since COVID? Oh, my bad. Oh, no, you haven't been. We love Joy. I love Joy very much. We love Joy. Joy, oh, look at you getting all very embarrassed. She busts on me all the time. I'm not even doing this to bust on her. What, Kelly? Don't be, don't be correcting me from that. I got the microphone. I'll be a, it's Joy. We love Joy. Is it bad? <laughs> anyway, Joy, we're very glad to have you. Okay. Now that I got all the non-text things out of the way, let's go ahead and get ready to jump into this passage in Matthew chapter 9. This is an interesting one because we have been in the book of Matthew for quite a while now, um, following the church calendar this year, and we get to a passage this week where we get to hear from the author of the book tell his own story. And uh, I, I don't know, I think for a lot of us this is true. There's something about testimonies that kind of touch us in a way that's different than other kinds of things, right? When you hear somebody's testimony, their story, particularly the religious spiritual testimony of how they met God how that affected their life, right? That, that, that just lands a different way. It doesn't feel like, like it's not preachy, it's not teachy, it's not trying to convince you of something, it's not trying to debate you of something. It's just simply sharing how it is that you met God, right? And uh, we actually don't always get these in the Bible where the, those who write scriptures share their own story of how they met God. But in this case, we do. We get to hear from Matthew himself of what it was like to meet Jesus and what it meant for him. And as we look at this, again, it's a short passage, but usually short, short passage, you can usually assume that the shorter it is, the more dynamite is in there, and you have to like really slow down, right? Um, often when you hear a testimony, and those of you been around church know this is what often happens. Often when somebody shares a testimony, particularly from a faith lens, they're usually going to share it kind of in a format of what my life was like before I met Jesus, 
what my life was like after I met Jesus, right? That's just, you know, it's not a form or anything. It just tends to be how people often tell their own story to kind of show the vivid contrast of how the transformation of encountering with Jesus changed their life. And to a certain degree, Matthew follows that. To a certain degree, he doesn't. Um, so the part where he doesn't, he doesn't get into a lot of detail. We just read the passage. He doesn't get into a ton of detail about what his life was like before and what his life was like after because... I think from Matthew's perspective, he figures it's pretty obvious who I was before and how that changed, right? The story starts with Matthew saying he was sitting at a tax collector's booth. And Matthew assumes for sure the readers back then, but hopefully that we too can kind of fill in the details, that to be a tax collector was to be somebody who was hated by just about everybody. To be hated by just about everybody, right? The, the Jewish community, the whole story of the Old Testament, the Jews are just repetitively oppressed by some kind of imperial power over and over. It starts at the very beginning of the story with being under the superpower of Egypt. Then you get Assyria, you get Persia, you get Babylon. And so in the times of Jesus, the imperial power is Rome, of course. They're under the oppressive rule of Rome. And so what most Jews are hoping for is that the Messiah, Jesus, will come and overturn that, create liberation and freedom for them. But man, if, if there was one kind of person that just about every Jew did dislike back then, it was tax collectors. <laughs> Because not only was a tax collector not on the side of the resistance, not on the side of trying to stand up against the imperial powers, they were profiting off of it, right? A tax collector worked for the Romans, collecting the Roman taxes from the Jews, everything that they could get out of their own people, above and beyond what was due, they would get to keep his profit, right? So a very disliked group by mainstream people, a very disliked group by religious people, as we'll see in this passage, because they were they were kind of exhibit A. Or there was the, the prostitutes and tax collectors tended to be the kind of shorthand for the whole group of sinners of how the religious establishment talked about them. So they're disliked by, by religious people. They're disliked by mainstream folks. Their tax collectors were usually hustlers, opportunistic, took advantage of this system, but then used it for their own gain. So Matthew's figuring, you probably don't need to have here a ton of the backstory, right? You can kind of figure out who I was before Jesus. You can also figure out, I'm going to become a disciple after this, right? You, you got a pretty good sense of how my life is about to change. So he doesn't do it before, after in that way, but he does shape this account in a before and after. And I think it's really important we see it this way. What, what Matthew focuses on, the name Matthew's used here, his former name Levi is used in the other accounts. What Levi focuses on, what Matthew focuses on here, the before and after is how he thought about faith and religion. All right, so let me say this. Matthew wants us to see that he had one way of how, all up until this encounter, he had a certain kind of way that he thought about faith and religion. After this encounter, after his encounter with Jesus, and after this particular encounter where the Pharisees show up at this party, it forever changed the way Matthew thought about faith and religion. And the shift was not subtle. It was not insignificant. It was not minimal. It changed everything for Matthew, shifting from how he used to think about faith and religion to how he now thinks about faith and religion which we're going to get in this moment. I even think it's worth pausing and even recognizing that this is an interesting thought experiment we could all do, right? Like, uh, how was it you thought about faith and religion before you really encountered God, the love of God, the transformation love of God? How is it that you would now think about faith and religion in a way that's different than you used to? This is what Matthew highlights in the story. And again, a testimony, a testimony is heartfelt, right? This is like, this is not Matthew being teachy. This is Matthew saying, here's what changed everything for me. And I'd like us to really, really focus in on this. It's one set, the, I would say the whole of this encounter is, is, is encapsulated in one sentence. There's some very famous language that came from this. Um, but this, this, for Matthew, represents both what, how he used to see it and how he sees it after 
um, this encounter with Jesus. So let's go ahead and bring yeah, the, the text back up again. So just to kind of catch up in the story, um, we see that Jesus comes in contact with Levi, with Matthew at the tax collector's booth. Jesus tells Matthew to come and be his disciple. Matthew responds, follows Jesus. That's all important, but I'm not going to focus on that. So what happens next, verse 10, we see that um, Matthew was obviously a popular guy with his other tax collector friends. I like how in this account it says not only were other tax collectors coming to the house, but even other sinners came. So you get this dinner party that's happening, which to be a fly on the wall in that conversation, right? <laughs> what is Jesus and however, not all the disciples have even been selected yet by this point, but Jesus and whatever disciples are there, what is that conversation like with Jesus and the disciples, you know, James, John, Andrew, those who have already said yes, and then Matthew and his tax collector buddies? What is a conversation like that over dinner? It just kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it, of where that conversation goes, what kind of questions people have for Jesus, what kind of questions Jesus had for them. But so this is the setting. There's this dinner party happening, and this would have been kind of out in the open. And so the Pharisees, which is one specific religious group, um, especially those tasked with overseeing the Old Testament laws and making sure that people follow this, Verse 11, the Pharisees see this. They ask the disciples who are there, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And now here's the, sen- here, here's the sentence that Matthew is sharing that changes everything for him. On hearing this, Jesus said, let these words sink in. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And this sentence, I mean, if you grew up in church, you've heard this before, but I would urge you not to let it become so familiar that you miss the power of this. If you've not really ever thought about how does God describe what our relationship should be like with God, for Matthew, this would be the single, the single clearest way. Um, Matthew is contrasting how he used to think about faith and religion with how he thinks about it after this. And so clearly Jesus is saying healthy, sick is kind of what we're shifting to. So let, let's look at it like this. The Pharisees represent actually how Matthew would have thought about faith and religion up to that point. Right, so at risk of being just a little bit simplistic, but I think it's still accurate. Let's say that for the Pharisees, the religious system was built around being good or bad. We say those two words with me, good or bad. After this conversation, Matthew discovers that Jesus doesn't see faith and religion as being oriented around being good and bad. It's instead oriented around being healthy and sick. All right, so we'll come back to healthy and sick in a moment. Let's develop... This is what, when I talk about how the Pharisees saw the world as good and bad, this is actually not unique to the Pharisees. I would say, I try to avoid making broad strokes, but almost every single religious system that has ever existed is built off of this same spiritual paradigm, right? That you see religion, that you see faith with God essentially being built around good or bad. In fact, I'm sure you've heard this. I've heard this conversation. I've heard people say this so many times I can't count anymore. I hear people say all the time, you know, when people don't particularly subscribe to one religion, what they'll often say is all religions are essentially the same, right? You hear stuff like that, and that's not even the part I'm, I'm kind of bringing up, but they'll say all religions are essentially the same. It's so what they say next that I think shows how universal this is. When somebody says all religions are essentially the same, what do they say is the same about all of them? They, they say we're supposed to be good people. That's the essence of religion. I've heard people of every background say this, that this is what's ultimately true of all religions, that we're supposed to be good people, right? We're supposed to treat people kindly. We're supposed to be charitable to our neighbors. We're supposed to be concerned for the vulnerable. We're supposed to show up in the world a certain kind of a way. This is what's ultimately true about all religions. I would go so far as to say is like, this is the default and without something that in a drastic way replaces it, this is the default of how all of us think about God is kind of a starting point. So in, in, 
in so many ways, this is nothing unique to the Pharisees. They just have kind of a whole institution built around this of making sure to like really clarify all the ways you're supposed to be good according to the Hebrew scriptures, all the way that we shouldn't be bad. And in one sense, it makes logical sense, but let's, let's ask, how does the good-bad paradigm work for how we think of faith and religion? It's simply this. It says, God has called us to do good, however that would be understood. And this is... This is how we should try to live our lives. We should try to live our lives accordingly with the rules that God has for us. More broadly, people I would, say, would say this about just of any God, keeping it specifically a Christian. The Christian view of seeing Christianity is around good and bad is that a Christian is supposed to be a good person. They're not, and nobody's going to argue with that, right? Of course, like the point is never that a Christian shouldn't be a good person. Nobody's arguing that. But I'm talking about as an actual operating system, as a way that you understand faith and religion, to see good and bad as the orientation it's, it's essentially an earning system, right? So the way you know you're right with God is that you're performing according to the Christian code and conduct, right? And so you strive, usually for good reasons, but sometimes out of fear, you strive to be as good as you can so that you're right with God, right? And then it becomes kind of a reward-punishment system. Like in the good-bad, it, 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 in all religious systems, it's got kind of a karma feel to it, right? When you're good, God rewards you for being good, when you're bad, God punishes you for being bad. So therefore, the goal again is always to be good. Now, at first glance, I even, even hearing them, I go, yeah, I mean, that, that, nothing sounds too wrong about that, right? Well, of course, we're supposed to be good. Of course, we're not supposed to be bad. But one of the deep geniuses here, and not here, just all throughout Scripture, is that what Jesus shows us consistently is that not only is that faulty, but it's toxic. It's poisonous, even, to have an orientation around God that's built around good and bad. Why? Why, why would you go so far to say it's not only off, it's poisonous? Well, we, we can even take a step back from the Bible and just look in the human realm. If you're watching a parent raise a young child and you observe that the parent and the, 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 the child's orientation of understanding love from that parent is based on how good that kid does each day, how healthy is that kid going to be as they grow up? If on a day where, they, let, let's put it, we just celebrated graduates, all right? Like, so let's put it into a high school format. If a high school student is only loved when they get straight A's, when they kill it in extracurricular activities, when they have all the right kind of friends, if, if, if that's how they get their parents' love, when they're doing really well, they're gonna actually probably feel like they're thriving, right? Because the parent really is showering them with affection. But what happens as soon as the child is not fulfilling the obligations or hopes that the parent has? What does that do to a child's identity? It, this is, the, any therapist will tell you, anybody who pays attention will tell you, right? That wrecks our identity. We are not built to associate earning with the receiving of love. When we come to think that love is based on earning or to say negative, love can be lost through failure, when, when our identity gets linked to love comes from earning, loss of love comes from failing, um, it creates an anxiety, a restlessness, um, a, a, a shallowness, because you're actually internally shallow. If, all you need, if, all you, if the only sense of love that you're able to grasp onto is because you're performing, you're achieving, you're earning that love, right? You're, just, you're, you're always on the edge of absolute collapse. And let's bring it now back spiritually. Uh, even when you are being good, <laughs> for the most part, it's still totally poisonous, right? Because here's what happens to those of us who have experienced this of like thinking of God and faith through the lens of being good enough. Even when you think you're being good, there are still these haunting questions inside, right? 
when you assume that God loves you because you're being good, the haunting question will always be, but am I being good enough? Am I being good enough? Right? Um, and then when failure does inevitably happen, when you do make a mistake, right, then the consequences of that feel so dire. Because then, then the anxiety increases even more like, shoot, I did something wrong. I missed something I wasn't supposed to do. Or I missed something I was supposed to do. I did something I wasn't supposed to do. Then the kind of questions, and the, oftentimes they're unspoken, but they're very much in this. The questions start becoming, what now, how much good do I need to do to make up for the bad that I just did? Because that's how the economy of love works in the good-bad system, right? And, you know, depending on how much you think about this, it can be even more haunting because you start to ask yourself, what if I didn't even realize I'm doing something bad? What if I'm doing something bad that I don't even know that I'm doing bad? then how much more good even do I have to do, right? Um, uh, it's, this, it's this really poisonous system that, again, it's not to suggest that how we live in the world is unimportant. Of course it's important. But when your orientation towards faith and religion is based off of being good or bad, it wreaks havoc. It wreaks havoc with how we come to understand who God is. And I might even add, it wreaks havoc in how we show up in the world with other people. Right? When your system is built around good and bad, there's a reality of humanity. The only way you actually know how good you are is by doing what? <laughs> is by comparing yourself to other people. That's the only way you can really gauge if you're being good. I'm, am I being good compared to how I determine other good people are? And then worse, where it gets really, really terrible, is if you build your system off of being good and bad, then it's really important to know who the bad people are. And it's really important to draw really clear boundaries around who's good, as I understand good, who's bad, and keep far away from the bad people. You see what I'm saying, right? So this is how the Pharisees work, but this is really how all religions work. And this is really key to understanding just this simple question, this simple, like, I don't actually think there, in fact, this is, this is the first conversation between uh, the first question that, that, decide, that the Pharisees ask of Jesus. So I don't even think they're being difficult necessarily when they ask this. When they come to, when they come to the disciples and say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? There's genuine confusion for them, right? Because their whole system for understanding God is you be as absolutely good as you can be. And if that's your system for understanding God is to be as good as you can absolutely be, it just makes logical sense that you avoid the bad people, right? So what they're saying about what they're saying to the disciples about Jesus is, look, at minimum, this is a bad witness. You're supposedly this spiritual teacher telling people how to be good according to God, and now you're hanging around with all these bad people. But at worst, what if you catch their bad behaviors, right? It is risky if the whole religious system is built off of being good and not being bad, then it's a poor idea to be associating with bad people, right? I mean, you can really follow how they get there. Again, I would say this is how everybody thinks if they don't have something redemptive that comes from God's very self, okay? So that... I, I think what Matthew is clearly showing us is that he would have described religion and faith the same way they did up until Jesus. And he knew he was one of the bad This is no surprise to him. He knew he was one of the bad guys. He knew as a tax collector he was seen as one of the bad guys. There's, when, the disciple, when the Pharisees say, why is Jesus hanging out with these tax collectors? That's not a surprise to any of the tax collectors there. They all know very clearly how they're seen by the Pharisees, by the religious people, by all the mainstream folks, Right? But now, in answer to this question, this is where Jesus in this one line changes everything. Jesus says, and when he hears this question, Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but sick. All right, so now let's spend a moment and say, how and why is this orientation of healthy and sick entire, there's nothing in common with good and bad. There's nothing in common with the way Jesus describes 
religion, faith, what it means to be in relationship with God. Jesus uses this language of healthy and sick. And so, uh, at first glance, so Jesus is saying it's not healthy if you need a doctor, it's the sick, right? So he, he's talking about being sick. At first glance, hearing Jesus describe us as spiritually sick doesn't exactly sound like great news, right? If we're talking about the good news of the gospel, if the, if the first words we hear, if for Matthew this is what changed everything, is that Jesus calls us spiritually sick, that doesn't at first glance sound like good news, does it? If we're honest? And yet, I would actually argue it's super good news and changes everything. Here's why. Um, it gets to, and this is what I think becomes, so, I mean, this is the gospel. This is what, what becomes so transformative for Matthew. But what Matthew realizes is that Jesus is describing our starting point, human beings, as human beings, Jesus is describing our starting point with God in a totally different way than the Pharisees understood. See, in good, bad, your, your starting point with God is based on performance, right? God is the one who gives the rules of how we're to live. We're the ones who are to keep the rules. And how God thinks of us is based on how good we do at keeping the rules. That's conditional, right? That's based on earning. That's based on performance. What, what Matthew discovers is that when Jesus talks about sickness and health, that the starting point is completely different, that the assumption from Jesus, is, and this, is, this is what's so life-changing, the assumption from Jesus is that the starting points with human beings and God is not of sin, not of being bad, not of being disobedient. The starting point for human beings is that they are blessed loved. The starting point for human beings is that they're beloved, that they're one with God, that their starting point is that they're at home. Now, in case you think I'm reading into this too much, this is the clear story on both, both, both that anchors both Testaments, right? In the garden, let's go to the Garden of Eden. This is where the whole story starts, right? In the Garden of Eden, does the story with Adam and Eve start with conditional love with God? Do Adam and Eve need to perform a certain kind of way each day in the garden in order to receive God's blessing and love? No. They, the starting point is they never question that they're loved. They're never, they never question that they're at one with God. They never question that they're in this flourishing presence of God. The starting point is not one of needing to earn something with God. The starting point is they're already home. They're already loved. Go to what you know is my favorite New Testament passage because it's where Jesus most clearly talks about God. In the story of the prodigal sons, even though eventually both sons sin and go away, is the starting point that the sons have to do something in order to earn the love of the Father? No, they're just home. They're at home with God as God's beloved, as represented by this Father. The starting point is not one of good and bad. The starting point is not one of having to earn or perform. The starting point is just simply that you're loved. So where does this language of sickness become so important? What Jesus is saying is, here is the major thing we're having to contend with as human beings created in God's image as beloved. The, the biggest thing we have to contend with is that there's a sickness inside of us. And that sickness causes us to disrupt that which was initially so good. That sickness, as let's, let's, we'll go to both. Adam and Eve in the garden, the two sons in the home, right? Everything is good, but there's a sickness inside of them for Adam and Eve to manifest in saying, let's eat of the tree and try to be as powerful as God. For the two sons in the home, the sickness says, particularly in the younger brother, the sickness says, I don't know that I like it here. I'm going to leave to try to find something else, an alternative to that, right? That there's a sickness that affects how it is that say another way, even when we have the best of who God is, 
and you might not feel like that's often what you experience, but this is what the Bible says, even, even when you are, even when we have the best of what God can give us, there's a sickness inside of us that wants to stray away from that, that wants to break that for reasons that are a mystery even to ourselves sometimes. And then not only does this sickness affect our relationship with God, obviously this sickness affects the way that we treat each other. And through selfishness, through indifference, through ambivalence and apathy, through our own ambitions, uh, this sickness, rather than doing what God says, love God, love neighbor, this sickness causes us to move out in the world that if this sickness is unchecked, harms other people. So said the simplest way, Jesus is saying your starting point is that of somebody who's beloved and delighted in by God, but there's this sickness that causes us to stray away from God to harm others while doing it. And so let's contrast these again. In the good-bad system, it's much more clear-cut um, how it works. If you see relationship with God through the lens of good and bad, the goal is to be good. If you're bad, everybody knows what you're supposed to do. If you're supposed to be good and you're bad, what are you supposed to do to remedy things? Be good again, right? Maybe be more good even than you were before. Maybe give extra money, work hard or volunteer hard. But this is how the psychology works of the good-bad system. You're supposed to be good. If you screw it up by being bad, you'd be even more good and hope that God will see your efforts and receive you back and forgive you, right? It gets a little bit more uh, uh, layered or dimensional when you think of it in the, in the lens of healthy and sick. If the goal is to be healthy, but we give in to our sickness... What is Jesus saying is the way that we are made right again. See, this is, the, this, is the, this is the magic of this verse, right? Again, it's just one verse, but I think for Matthew, it represents the whole of how he understood Christianity. Let's bring it up one more time, if you, if you, don't, if you don't mind, uh, Dave. Is this your debut up there, Dave? Thank you for doing slides. All right, look at verse 12 again. Going slow through this, Jesus says in response to the Pharisees asking, why does the teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So say it in the other direction. If you're sick, what is it that you need? A doctor, right? Again, I want to say it slow, and I want to let you sing it. For Matthew, this became the way he came to understand Christianity. Not that I have to be good enough to impress God or earn favor with God, perform well enough that God will receive me, but instead to see that there's a sickness inside of me and the one and only remedy is what? To go back home to the doctor. This is where the phrase the great physician comes from. It actually isn't called the great physician. We've kind of added on, but rightfully so. In King James, it says physician here. So where that phrase the great physician comes from. The only, the one and only, but wonderfully available remedy for being sick is we go to the great physician. Entirely different than a good-bad system where you have to earn and uh, retrieve God's favor by being really good or performing in a certain kind of a way. Matthew comes to understand Christianity is fundamentally an approach of we were good and loved, we're sick and stray from that, and in our sickness we realize we need to come back to the great physician. How am I, I'll, I'll do these quick. What, what, hap what happens, what is it that God does for I, I want to spend a minute on these. If you can see that, that it's not about being good or bad, it's about being sick and well, and that God wants you to be well, but first you have to realize you're sick to come to the great physician to be made well. How is it that God makes us well? Let's just spend a moment there. How is it that the great physician makes you well once you realize that you're sick? Uh, because this is so core to my transformation too, I think it's core to his. Can I say quickly three things, and we'll kind of finish up with these. 
if you see yourself as sick and needing to go to the great physician, what does the great physician do to make you well? I would say it's all about things that God reminds us of because I think we know these things. First, here's the first thing I think the great physician does. I think the first, the great physician, I've referred to this already, the great physician reminds us who we were before our, our sickness took us away from God. The great physician reminds us who we were before our sickness took, away, took us away from God. And this, this is where the two pastors I keep referring to. To me, I always go back to these because I think these are given to us to orient us of who we were. In the Garden of Eden, th- 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 this is its own, we've done a whole series just on this idea. In the Garden of Eden, the, the story of humanity does not start with God saying human beings were bad and needed to be forgiven. The story starts with God looking at human beings and saying, they're good. They're good. What I have made is good. This will repair a lot of your spiritual damage if you realize you're not inherently bad. Your starting point is not brokenness. Your starting point is not sin. Your starting point is belovedness and being delighted in by God. And the great physician will remind you of that over and as often as you'll let the great physician remind you because that is repairing kind of work to remember who I am before the damage is good, beloved, and delighted. Secondly, what the great physician does is remind us that the sickness does not affect God's posture towards us. It affects our posture towards God. Right? This, is, this is the power of both of those stories, both the Garden of Eden and the prodigal sons. Right? When Adam and Eve sin in the most spectacular way possible, I've shared this before, but it's still so, I can't, as many times I heard the story of the Garden of Eden growing up, I still remembered it wrong. If, uh, I, remember, I realized this in my late 20s that how I remember the story of the Garden of Eden is that Adam and Eve sin and God turns God's back on them because of their sin. That's how I remember the story because that's how my brain thinks of religion, that when you screw up, God God punishes you. That's, that's reward and punishment. That's how good, bad works. But in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sin, you know what God does? God comes and asks them where they're at so they can take their daily walk. Nothing changes in God's posture towards Adam and Eve when they sin. Nothing. Nothing changes in God's posture towards Adam and Eve when they sin, but their posture towards God changes. They run. They hide. They cover themselves. So I'm not saying it's insignificant what happens because of sin, but what the great physician reminds us is that God didn't leave you. You left God. God didn't stop loving you. You stopped loving God. God is not playing hide-and-seek with you. You're playing hide-and-seek with God. The order that makes all the difference in the world. And now now let's take it to the prodigal son, because to me this is just showing the same thing, the Garden of Eden in a New Testament version. When the the father loves both sons, when that younger prodigal leaves and says, I wish you were dead, give me your inheritance, what does the father do? Does the father say, you'll be lucky if you can ever come back to this house, right? What does the father do? Does the father say, you're never welcome back to this house? Nothing changes, not one thing changes. The younger brother tells the father, wishes he was dead. Nothing changes on the father's side. More so, the father goes out to the front porch every day hoping for a sighting of that son who just said, I wish you were dead. Right? And when that younger brother comes back, right, he's ready to give a whole speech, trying to, like, become just a servant. In the house. No, that's not it. All that the younger brother had to do, in fact, this is how the Luke 15 story says it. It says when he's out in the fields, emaciated and eating pig food, it says he came to his senses. I just need to go home. That, that's what the great physician says. The great physician reminds you that it's way more simple than you're treating it as. That when the sickness has a hold of you, all you got to do is come back home. Can't be that simple, can it? 
it's how the Bible says it over and over. This is what Matthew got from here. This isn't about performing a bunch of sacrifices. Jesus says, I don't want sacrifices. This isn't about performing a bunch of sacrifices to hope that God will forgive you. You just got to come home. It sounds too good to be true. And then the, the final thing, and I've kind of said this already, the final thing that I think the right physician does is remind us that when you're ready to come home, God is waiting with open arms every single time. And now this, this pushes the lines of our imagination because when we see other people being bad, we say, ah, it doesn't feel fair. They can just screw up and screw up and screw up and screw up and then just come home whenever they're ready. But then that same line of thinking we put on them torments us that we don't believe we can come home when we've screwed up. And of course, God doesn't want us to keep screwing up and over and over again. The point of the prodigal son is not that the younger brother would keep leaving over and over again. The hope is that he sees what happens from leaving and doesn't want to leave anymore, not because he's trying to impress the Father in his love, but just simply he can see more clearly now. The great physician heals us in such a way to say, home is the only, spiritual home is the only place where you're seen, where you're loved, where you, who you're supposed to be, where you continue to be growing into who, all that God has created you to be, where you live in this sense of delight. Home is the only place where that happens. So yes, you will screw up and leave. Yes, you will defy me. Yes, you will do things that are just embarrassingly painful to God and the great physician reminds us that God's waiting for us because it's not based on good and bad that our relationship with God, it's based on sickness and health and what I think Matthew clearly walks away from this is that health simply means not simply, in the most beautiful ways health means you're at home with God delighting in the one who delights in you and that's not about being good to perform for God or to earn God's favor, it's to be good because you love God and you want to join and participate in what God is doing in the world. But it's totally different when you do that in a sense of love, not because you're earning your way back in, but because that's who you are. And so that's where, that's where I think is the genius of this passage. This is, this, this, I think I said I was closing already, but this is really the, the final, this is the final piece. This is when I was close this up. In verse 11, when the Pharisees see Jesus talking to the tax collectors, the Pharisees say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So here's the fun part of this passage. When Jesus says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, which group is he calling sick? Is he calling the tax collectors and sinners sick? Is he calling the Pharisees sick? Which group is he calling sick? He's calling all of them sick. They're all sick. Right Now, nobody's going to deny sickness plays out in different ways, and you can hurt people in different ways when you're sick, and it, it might even be argued. I mean, it's certainly clear that tax collectors hurt their own people, but I don't know. Religious people can really hurt people too, right? I'm not even sure you can quantify who hurt people more in their sickness. But the bottom line, Jesus is saying, you're all sick. You're all sick. The difference is some of these tax collectors are starting to realize that they're sick, and they're going to come to the one who can make them well. It's unclear yet if you as the Pharisees are willing to see yourselves as sick. I mean, what a, and you get little glimpses. Nicodemus kind of sees this. That's why Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of night because he realizes it's not just about performing, that Jesus knows something of God that he doesn't know. But the bottom line, what, what Jesus hoped for from the tax collectors was the same thing Jesus hoped for from the Pharisees, that they would say, dang, that's true. I, there is something sick inside of me. Which again, that's not the funnest thing to say, but man, it's true. I see it myself. There's something sick inside of me that turns me into a wayward, that even when God shows God's love, I find myself pushing away, pulling away from that love. There's some kind of sickness in me that harms people even when I don't mean to. I need to be made well. 
Jesus wished both groups would say, I'm sick. I hunger for the great physician. I want to be made well and live in the world in this healthy, whole place. He wanted both groups to respond the same. Just like in the story of the prodigal sons, it's the younger brothers who actually see their sickness. The story of the prodigal son ends with the older brother outside, not sure yet what he's going to do. And that's what I think Matthew is saying in this story, that up until this point of meeting Jesus, he thought, the, he thought the religious system was built off of being good or bad. And he realizes, Jesus, that's not how Jesus works. Jesus isn't saying, be good, and then I'll bless you and take care of you. Jesus is saying, here's a sickness that causes you to, way, to go wayward away from God, and you need to come home to the great physician. Where home is a lot of things, but included in this passage, home is the place where the great physician makes you well. May that be true of all of us that we long for the great physician to make us well. Amen? Join me in prayer, if you will, as we reflect on that deep and powerful passage. God, as we, listen, as we enter into the story today through the testimony of Matthew, what a cool way to kind of interact with these ideas, through Matthew's own testimony of meeting you in this gift he shares of what it was that most stood out, what it was about religion that he thought of in a certain way all the way up until you and how everything changed when he met you, how this conversation changed everything, that it's not about earning, performing, sacrificing, doing spectacular things for God that earns your love and acceptance and admiration. That actually is who we were before we ever did one good thing or one bad thing. We were already were your beloved children. But in this very real way, Matthew sees that health is available to us, but we have to realize that without you, we are sick. This sickness corrodes our ability to see you and trust you. This sickness causes us to walk away from the God who is good. And some of us do that like the younger brother where it's in like really vivid and obvious ways where we just defy the way you have called us to live. For some of us, it's in the much more sinister and subtle ways where we actually use goodness as a way to control you until you do something that we don't like and then we go out the back door like the older prodigal did. But bottom line, there's a sickness that even when we're up close to you, we start to drift away. I think of the old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. That is the definition of the sickness that Matthew shares here. Prone to wander, prone to leave the one I love. I am so convinced from my own story that the wellness, the health, more than anything, is to see you for all that you are and to see who we are as embraced loved, beloved, delighted in children. I think all of life feels different when we're healthy in how we see you and how we see ourselves. And then you send us out into the world, not judging who's good and who's bad and who's in and who's out. No, you send us out into the world as people who are getting healthier and healthier and inviting everybody else to come see the great physician and become healthy as well. So God, we want to be healthy people. You want us to be healthy people. There is no question about that. You want us to be healthy. We want to be healthy. But you're also super clear how that happens. It's not through self-reformation efforts. It's not through trying harder. It's not through earning. It's not through performing that we become healthy. We become healthy by coming home to the great physician. 
You are the one who makes us well. You are the one who makes us healthy. Certainly we need each other in that process as well. But if we can be humble enough to recognize our sickness, we can become positioned to receive the power of your health. Continue to build us in healthy beings who are loved and who can then love in such miraculous ways. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank the worship team. Invite us to pray before benediction, in addition to just kind of inviting God to illuminate the scriptures to us. This is an important day for our city. We're having our annual fundraiser this afternoon, so I want to pray for God's provision in that. So I'd ask you to join in prayer, if you will. Again, God, I know for me, I hope for all of us, that uh, this testimony of Matthew is such a free a freedom from a system where we have to earn your favor and risk punishment all the time such this beautiful invitation to be made well to be made whole in you continue to help us to see that invitation to give us the strength and power to respond fully to it We know one of the outcomes of that is that we are sent out into the world in a different kind of way as salt and as light, as your children who is in the Beatitudes, it says, are those who seek peace because we are your children. So we're thankful for our city, for the work that happens here every day during the week. We're really prayerful, hopeful that this event today not only will galvanize and strengthen those who are already connected to our city, We'll bring in some new supporters, bring in some new folks who see the importance of this work and that do what you do where you help us to build off of the resources where those who have been blessed with the resources can help share and strengthen the work of what's happening. So we do pray earnestly for that. Celebrate again the graduates. We're excited for them. Thankful for that time to celebrate them. May we go forth remembering who you are and who you've called us to be. And all of God's people said, amen.